welcome to Sintalk. The Sintalkers around the table today discuss the infrequent and unlikely. We'll think about infrequent, rare and unlikely events and scenarios in a wide range of phenomena. How is likelihood different from probability? What role does prior belief or expectation play in estimating likelihoods? How common are rare species and where and how may they be found? Is evidence a comparative concept? How can uncertainty itself be quantified? Can surprise be modeled? Why are simulations necessary? In any system do rare unlikely events happen in very very few ways? Would we better learn to avoid perfect storms by modeling the future better? And what is truly unlikely to happen? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Professor Sandeep Juneja, he is an applied probabilist and has been working on modeling and analyzing rare events. He is from TIFR in Mumbai. Professor Subhash Lele, he is a statistician and has worked on domains such as public health, physical anthropology and ecology. He has also been interested in philosophy of science. He is from University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. And Dr. Karthikeyan Vasudevan. He is a conservation biologist and is from CCMB in Hyderabad. He currently leads the Laboratory for Conservation of Endangered Species. So, uh, Sandeep, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Uh, you've thought about rare events in many, many different domains over the years. Uh, now, when we think of rarity, and especially in more eventual terms, uh, it looks like, very broadly speaking, correct me if I'm wrong here, one models something based on what's happened in the past. So, at some level, you, you um, hope that the past is useful for predicting the future. Now, how generic or how right a statement is that? And when does that work? When does that not work? And when do you need to get into the domain of simulation to... Uh, start figuring out or getting into the domain of rare events. Why don't we start there and we'll see where we go. Well, in certain settings, you know, you can see that past is fairly representative of the future. So, for example, rare event modeling is done a great deal in internet design. When you set up the buffer levels, how much information to store so as to prevent losses of information. Now, there are things that are happening at the nanosecond level. So there's enormous amount of information that you gather in a few seconds. And it's fairly representative of what's going to happen in the next uh, some time periods. Because so the that, state is the same? Yeah, I mean, the world has not really changed it doesn't change that so much. much. Yeah. yeah, Fundamentally, it's not really moved that much. So that would be one setting. Chemical reactions, you know, you expect them to kind of... So some chemical reactions are very rare and you expect that property to hold going forward as well. You know, nothing has fundamentally changed. But when you're modeling human behavior, the world at large, financial events, insurance events, you have to be a little bit more careful. The way the, you know, for example, in an insurance company, the claims were coming in the last one year, would that continue for next year? It's not so clear. Things may have fundamentally changed. 
so i mean one has to be so careful so is mm-hmm. the is the mathematics of these two different of course the mathematics cannot be entirely different but how what are the first few steps as you go about modeling them why are they how are they distinct and different let's try and appreciate that uh, well i mean in the in the sense that you're looking for so you you know mathematics relies on coming up with a mathematical model for you which you need historical data sure uh, so in one case there's lots of representative data available in the other case the data is far less you know if you're looking at event which happens uh, one in say um, you know a uh, few years then you need that much of data to be able to make those predictions so in the social settings where as i mentioned people are involved uh, the time scales are such that you don't have enough data mm-hmm. so to that extent you know the model that you come up with you have less faith in it but is that a problem of just scarcity of data or there's something different about the nature of the data as well I mean, like so if mm-hmm. 2 million years pass and human beings have lived for that much longer mm-hmm. would you be okay or so it's it's more the it's, it's, right. it's more a qualitative question as well or oh I mean, it's it's like it's a representative data sure so you wonder if the past data is representative of how the future is going to be mm-hmm. technologies have changed how people think has changed so are the same events which were driving the rare event in the past is that going to continue so that's a cause to worry you can't really predict these things but you have to be very aware when you make decisions and when you evaluate the numbers and kind of make sense of them so what do you bring to the table then do you just bring a certain kind of conservatism and this attitude when you are analyzing the data and how how is the math different again not right. the not the technicals of it but the but they with mm-hmm. how chemical reactions are different from the way human beings interact sure one gets that but okay so what happens next well i mean conservatism is a point of view that you keep with you mm-hmm. but as a mathematician we would come up with a mathematical model right of the overall system being aware that mathematical models are poor approximations often of the real world they're all but wrong they level. are completely wrong sometimes more so in for rare events right but nonetheless given a model now you want to understand you know the probabilities of rare events how the rare events occur so there what we bring out is that you know typically you may have a very complicated model mm-hmm. but at least you know as the randomness increases in a certain sense in some asymptotic regimes which are very reasonable things simplify so dimensions collapse so to speak and the patterns become uh, you know more clear so our role as mathematicians is to identify those patterns you know technically speaking we have we develop asymptotic regimes where problems simplify in some sense we understand what's kind of governing the rare events but is that is that closer to the time that the rare event is approaching or even even at the level of the model this is at the level of the model right. so i mean once you made a mathematical model now it's a mathematical problem so it can be a complicated difficult mathematical problem which simplifies as the scale of the model becomes large and how how does one go about doing that dimensional reduction uh you come up with clever asymptotic regimes you know uh say, let me give you an example of a say a financial portfolio mm-hmm. so a bank uh, say an icici bank has maybe 100000 loans and financial instruments on their portfolio now realize you realize that 100000 is a very large number and there's a lot of randomness which is being averaged out in the right way So now you look at a, your mathematical model where this number of instruments are going to infinity. Mm-hmm. So in this asymptotic result as this goes to infinity you see a pattern you know what is governing the large losses in this portfolio. You can say this much much more crisply in that sense. Right right and typically again one doesn't need to do this in a enumerated kind of way but what would be those variables that govern so in that asymptotic regime in the case right. of this loan portfolio it could be that there there's an underlying economy which is correlated with some kind of other factors say oil shocks etc they move in a certain way and that's the dominant way 
So you could say that it's actually consumer inflation, which is the best indicator that a default is likely to happen, something like that. Yeah, I mean, so you you model these underlying factors. Hmm. Some are important in predicting large losses, some less so. You can crystallize all of that. Right. That's where mathematics becomes useful. So you get the most likely way in which rare events occur. And, and the nice thing there, the wisdom there is that, you know, although we are looking for unlikely events, the unlikely events usually happen in the most likely way. <laughs> so it's it's a nice optimization problem from a mathematics point of view to identify the, the, those uh, points of most likeliness. So Subhash, I think uh, Sandeep has already used your favorite word, likelihood. Uh, <laughs> what yes. is likelihood? And it, it, it help us help us get a get an appreciation for that term. Technically, of course, we know how we use it in uh, a day to day way. But yeah. what is likelihood? So. I'm going to backtrack a bit sure. uh, before I get to likelihood. So there are two different things that we do in modeling and statistics. Mm -hmm. We have deductive logic and inductive logic. Of course. So in deductive logic, you have a model, and based on that, you can do all kinds of predictions, as you were saying, whether you use computers or math or whatever. So the model comes first, of course. It's based in data and but all that. Given that the model is true. Right. Okay, but in real life, we don't know what the true model is. Right. All that we have are the data. Right. So given now the question is the reverse. From the data, how do I choose a model? Right. So there might be many different models that may be feasible. And given the data, I have to decide which model is better supported by the given data. And and when you say different models, Subhash, mm -hmm. you don't just mean different weightages for these different variables and all that, not just in a combinatorially different sense, but you mean it in a fundamentally different in sense? A funda so they could be different in terms of form. Right. So for example, uh, to take a uh, regression model, so you could have a linear regression that could be simple, but I may have quadratic or I might have more covariates that I have to think sure. about. And so these are the kinds of different models that I'm talking about. Sure. And so given the data, I have to decide... Which model to go for. Which form of the model. Right. And then given the form, I have to estimate particular parameters that will come closest to the data. So the the form, the model form selection comes prior to that? Uh, they are simultaneous. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and so likelihood is actually, that corresponds to the distance between the data and the model. Right. So it is a kullback leibler divergence, uh, not distance in a technical sense. Sure. It is, uh, it is asymmetric. That's why it is not a distance. And so likelihood is actually a kullback leibler divergence between the data, which is considered the true model, uh, represents the true model, and different hypotheses. So and so when you when you have let's say seven candidate models, mm -hmm. you don't say that this is the true model and all the other seven are wrong. That is you correct. say that this is true, but this is more likely to be truer and and so on. That, so well, I won't use the term true truer. or truer. I would say this is better supported or it comes closest to the truth. Sure. So it doesn't mean it is a good model. So one something could be close. So for example, uh, Pune is close to Frankfurt, <laughs> it is closer to Karachi. Right. And so, what, but doesn't mean Pune and Karachi are right next to each other. Right. So Karachi is closer to Pune, but not necessarily the best. Right. So um, you can have seven models, all seven models could be horrible, 
but you can always say that this is the best of the seven models so how does one jump to likelihood from this so that likelihood is actually the quantification of those distances mm. so likelihood is uh, in that sense when we do induction we don't use probability which is what in deductive what you logic, do in deductive logic. Uh, you are using probability whereas in the inductive logic you are calculating these distances and so likelihood represents the distance from the truth to the model uh, for example if you take the likelihood function in a, it doesn't integrate to one so right. it cannot it's not be like a, probability. it is not a probability distribution it has no interpretation of that uh, data are fixed and models are not random either so models are just what they are and you are calculating the support for different models so likelihood represents the support although it, colloquially we use likelihood chance <laughs> probability all in kind interchangeable of interchangeable interchangeable way but that is not technically correct in statistics but but this description subash this sounds a little methodological it looks like you look at a problem and you try to find a model that fits closely to it is there anything which is in remotely in the nature of a law or uh, what do you mean by that it just seems more like a method right this to to identify the best possible model for the data set right. that you have it is <laughs> so there is a in a way it is a, it is a particular case hmm. of the general theory that one can develop has right. been developed right. uh, which is that given a model a given data and two different hypotheses there are different ways to define the distance or divergence between them and so there could be a situation where let's say we were talking about rare events or yeah. things of that sort and if we were to think of it in that context mm-hmm. if you if you chosen one model as opposed to the other you just come to a totally totally different conclusion that's right uh, but and you may also define the distance so that it is appropriate for the particular issue that you are dealing with so for example in rare events you may not necessarily choose a likelihood function you may choose more weight to the rare events than some others so the choice of the weight a uh, choice of the divergence is up to the researcher and so many times in statistics uh, we start with the likelihood and there is a reason for that as it turns out that if you consider the class of all possible divergences uh, with a few um, regularity conditions it turns out the kullback leibler divergence is the best in the sense that if i am given two models what is the probability that i will be misled hmm. to choose a wrong model uh, choosing a wrong model is a misleading evidence given the data and ideally what we would like to have is the probability of misleading evidence goes to zero right. as the sample size increases that right. i should get to the truth eventually right. Right. and if there is a divergence that takes you there fast so if the misleading probability of misleading evidence goes to zero fast for one particular divergence measure as compared to others i would prefer that another thing one could think about is i want i am doing this because i want to discriminate between two models hmm. but given the data it could happen that i cannot discriminate so that is what we call probability of weak evidence so i maybe this maybe that i'm not sure and so again we want is that the probability of weak evidence goes to zero as well and what remains is probability of strong evidence for the right model right and so what one can actually show uh, 
is that the probability of strong evidence for the right model converges to one fastest if you use Kullback Labular. Right. But then there are constraints on that, that provided the model is correct. If the model is wrong, then... So that's why you use something called robust measures of divergence, where you may decide that some outlier may be not important. On the other hand, for rare mm-hmm. events, outlier may outliers be also, are precisely, are the precisely that what we want. So you may decide not to use a robust method. You may want to actually make it more sensitive to the real right. probabilities. And you have a choice. So you would pick that. a different model. Yeah. So when you say rare, before we, if we go to Karthik, what, what does rare mean? Do you have like a probability <laughs> number? Do you have like less than 0.001? Like, I mean, it depends. Of course, depends on the domain and the phenomenon. Depends on the context. So in, in, you know, in information loss on the internet, Maybe one in a billion packet being lost is uh, is a rare event. That's a cause of concern. In the insurance settings, you know, maybe one in thousand or finance setting, one in thousand, one in hundred is a rare event. Right. What is rare for you, uh, Karthik? What is rare in your world? In the biological world. What, what do you world? end up labeling as a rare species? Yes, in the in, in the ecological biological context. See, uh, it's slightly different from what we perceive as. What, like rare events that have been discussed so far. Sure. Um, rare is one would would be which would be infrequently encountered. Mm-hmm. You know that doesn't really mean that it is out there in very few numbers. Right. So uh, you know when we collect evidence of uh, organisms, we try to encounter them. Uh, that's the best way of uh, knowing them. There are better and better ways now uh, that we are able to find what is out there. And with that improvement in technology, we realize that just encountering them doesn't justify them to be called rare. But is there a norm or a convention that you all developed in different species or different genuses, whatever? Like what... I mean, is there is there a minor controversy between you and your colleagues to say that you know this species is rare or not rare? What yeah, you have to account for detection probability. Spectrum, right? Basically, you have to when when I say encounter, just observing it. Right. So uh, then there is an undetected number of animals or plants, mm. right? You have to account for it to you have to incorporate it within the estimate of the abundance to qualified to be called rare, mm-hmm. right? But uh, in nature, if you see the distribution of rare and common species, you find more rare species than common ones. Oh, really? Yeah, that's the rule. When you were asking for rules, this is a rule that wherever you go so in... So there would be a super long tail to use yes, this terminology exactly. where many, You're many species right. are in very, very small numbers. Exactly. Now, do you think of these in terms of numbers or biomass or... I mean, I Any, you can call them actual numbers, you can quantify them in terms of biomass, uh, uh, any, any quantity. So there will be a long tail, as you just mentioned, mm-hmm. and there will be many rare species and very few common ones. And the rarer, so the, then after that would be endangered, right? So if it if it's on the no, all brink I of think the endangerment uh, doesn't. Uh, up, uh, there is no there's no species that qualifies to be endangered because it is either rare those or are common. Just official lists I guess many many species which were once common have become endangered. So mm. uh, the the nature which uh, drives them to become endangered is very different from what pans out in the nature. 
and obviously human beings are in the equation but if we take ourselves out of the equation a yeah. little bit uh, and if we thought of this as some kind of a curve with this long tail are things always falling off like there is a background yeah, yeah, data huge, fixation uh, right? you so. just take the example of islands mm. you know the islands are typical examples of uh, you know very high levels of uh, endemic uh, uh, elements like plants animals you will find them nowhere else in the world right so they are just confined to a few hectares of land oh it's that it's yeah, that some of them are so narrow so if they if they go extinct that is rare i mean that's really rare right so you there are such examples which you would see in nature which uh, qualify to be called really rare so does this correspond in any way to the kind of uh, you know algorithmic or physical processes or chemical reactions or whatever where there is a long tail but obviously you worry about dangerous rare events presumably mm. i mean that's yeah. what um, but does this long tail exist what what kinds of phenomena have a super long tail that's and what right, kind of right. phenomena i mean what what a thick tail what a thin sure. tail is there a way of uh, so yeah generalizing that no absolutely so mathematicians worry about underlying principles which lead to a long tail as opposed to a thin tail hmm. uh so for example if events are uh, you know if certain phenomena is rare but it's kind of it depends on many sums of many independent things playing uh, with each other then that's because they you know when things are independent they cancel out to see a rare event there would be far more less likely while on the other hand if you have a phenomena which builds upon itself so there's some kind of a feedback there's a feedback loop yeah so those are cases where you have a long tail or a fat tail so when things are going bad they make things going further bad more likely and uh, so those are kind of you know they're still tail events but they're far more likely than the other kind of tail events and one has to be much much more careful about them and even in natural evolutionary processes and so on kartik are there situations like these which are more feedback like mechanisms where if something is rare then it just that you know whatever that extinction or whatever gets accelerated and it's swiped out of the system if uh, in a in a natural situation setting if extinctions are accelerated it will be supported by speciation events so, so there would be new species whenever, as well. whenever there is extinction there is more speciation right so that is when you find the equilibrium you mm. know the number of species remaining the same but some exiting some entering in the uh, in the nature so uh, you would find a balance there and uh, very often i mean we construe species going rare or becoming actually ecologically rare to be those which try to escape competition mm. Mm. you know they they want to just exclude themselves from other competitors and mm. take in take over a niche which nobody else tries to occupy mm. and those which are abundant are just uh, ones which are more exposed to competition or the better uh, i mean they are resilient in that sense so we are, we are also in a way hinting on this whole notion of redundancy right so i mean yeah. are there are there so the more abundant species do they do they have many candidate redundant co-species and so on uh, Or, not really i was telling you that the more the common ones are few right but the rare ones are many many so is the redundancy so, high on that yeah, on that side the more most most probably the more more uh, uh, the, the number of species which are redundant would be more on the rarer side of the curve and if if one of those species goes extinct it doesn't mean that the redundant co species are also going extinct right that not, uh, there's no lot of extinctions that. naturally occur in a stochastic manner right 
no they don't they they're not driven by a certain yeah there's no villain there yeah. wiping people so off. there are events that cause them so they are unpredictable so the uh, you know there is this rivet hypothesis mm-hmm. you are you equate uh, biodiversity to the number of rivets on an aeroplane mm-hmm. so you fix more rivets than it is required every every important joint has m- at least 3 or 4 rivets mm. to mm. hold it together and you can keep on removing the rivets but that one key rivet if you remove the whole plane will collapse right so we don't know which is that rivet so that's the keystone species or whatever right you, you know. it's a, it's not the keystone it's the it's it's called the rivet hypothesis <laughs> so you don't know which is the rivet that is the last one which you'll remove and the plane will collapse so the precautionary principle is when you remove rivets you always uh, you know question whether this is inching closer to the last one so this is in a way a mechanism design system design kind of problem right where i don't know whether dependent right. structures or what but you need to know what is actually is causing something yeah i mean you say to yourself okay i can tolerate probabilities of some small level but i don't know how good my model is so you know my model will not is not going to tell you how many rivets are going to be enough so i build up redundancy right. i build up that many more uh, you know rivets to kind of be much more comfortable with the situation i mean that's a bigger thing that you know in the rare event setting i mean you know modeling to predict future is a sin but right. twice so mm-hmm. when you're doing in the rare event setting so you know whether using likelihood or whatever it's so sensitive to the data you really can never be completely comfortable with the model so it's like in any engineering setting you just you know build up the safety that much more right right and when and you you've done some work in the ecological settings uh, subhash mm-hmm. so I mean, these are so. If one thinks of only one species or whatever, these are regular population models with birth, death rates, and things yes. of that sort. Yeah. But there would be so many variables, no? So how does one go about modeling something of this nature? Uh, that's where statistics comes in. Hmm. So you put in the most important variables as part of the model, and the rest we dump in the <laughs> variation. right basically and try to model the variation as well as we can so what so what's the nature of the most important variable uh th- what ki- a, what kinds of things are these we, we can a, either take a species or something and talk around that right for a single species for example what will affect their fecundity hmm. and the survival hmm. what factors would affect them and many times in the sexually reproducing species you will have to worry about can they meet the mates right so for example polar bears is a major case right now right where they cannot meet their mates because the ice flows uh, there is not enough ice right and so, so they stranded the, on two separate icebergs or yes, whatever something exactly. to that effect and they sing to each other <laughs> 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 and so those are the issues that we have to think about and how to model there so uh, the one question that i was wondering about uh, sort of connecting sandeep's point to karthik's point is that can we uh, can we define rarity of a species in terms of probability of encounter probability of encounter encounter so if you encounter it very rarely in a particular way that you are trying to encounter them 
But there must be that will correspond to because the less idea. the number of species, the less the probability becomes. Right, so kind of, that yeah. you have to go farther or right. whatever. Yeah. More time you have to spend. So encounter would be what? Encounter would be just like you go on a field trip and you yeah. notice it. It's, yeah. right. it's just as simple as that. Exactly. So it's just observation. Yeah. Right. So, so this uh, uh, it it is it would be very difficult because most most observations we make are biased. You know, uh, like we see, which is obvious. Right. We don't see, which you, is you see hidden. what you're looking for. Yeah, or we we look for something, and if it is obvious, we cite it. Mm-hmm. If it is slightly hidden, or if it comes up and goes back before we are awake and we go back to sleep, uh, then you miss it. Like uh, you know, you have several animals that come out only few days to come out of the ground and breed mm-hmm. and go back in so right. if you miss those few essential uh, days that they emerge out you are not going to see them so that does that mean that that organism is rare just because you encounter them you know or you'd never encounter them okay, i think because you work with super endangered species i think you have really obscure animals in mind i think uh, <laughs> yeah the kind of cases that subhash is thinking of as maybe this elks and bears and, uh, uh, and not, bears and not necessarily me i have worked with the rare species also for example uh, we have different phenology and if you don't go at the right time especially in uh, botany that you yeah. don't see the flower you don't know what what kind of what species they are but that's where i think uh the second question that i had sandeep or both of you what is a representative sample is an important issue mm-hmm. and so i don't know how exactly you define a representative sample because that is the critical component if you don't have a representative sample then the whole thing falls apart so do you have any ideas about what you would consider a representative sample for rare events particularly yeah. i was thinking in terms of no i can give you well you know i guess one insight in this regard is that for example in the financial world when say a central bank is worried about the collapse of the economy and they are gathering up they are trying to justify the mathematical model and now they need a representative sample so you go back and look at the errors where the economy was stressed mm-hmm. you know the 2008 era maybe even the far east crisis happened earlier and you use samples from that time period and you hope that that's more representative so it's more representative is a less representative about the you know the kind of problems that you worried about in future uh but by definition it is going to be a small sample that is correct so so that's <laughs> the other issue one is okay where do you get a representative sample and then how much sample do you need right So how much is you know if your probability is so let me just say in the layman's term if your probability of interest is 1 in 1000 then maybe you need 100000 samples yeah so you need to see the rate event about 100 times one can quantify uh-huh. this but that's the feel but the question is in ecology yeah. would you ever get any such sample and in if you don't then how much are your inferences dependent on the models yeah and is it based on some kind of a blind faith almost in <laughs> underst- uh, me i won't call it i'm maybe a blind faith is too extreme, too extreme word, yeah. but because you know a lot about the biology and the uh, natural history of those species so you you do know something but otherwise with these rare species or rare events i always worry about not having enough sample and depending on the model a whole lot and then how to how to make 
correct inferential statements in the light of those two kind of difficult situations yeah It's, so i i just wanted to respond to your first question of uh, you know representativeness of your samples and how what do you think is sufficient sample see uh, when we look at uh, animals say let's say the example of your polar bears uh-huh. so uh you need to have a certain understanding of the animal before you decide on your sampling unit right because mm-hmm. uh, an animal would range maybe 100 square kilometers and you can't have a, a 100 square meter sampling unit it has to be representative of the range it uses in its uh, habitat so you would uh, derive your sampling unit based mm-hmm. on some information but wouldn't there be a relationship karthik between the population size and range i mean does it i mean uh, oh, that, those are all very tenuous relationships but uh, larger the body size obviously they are they have big range right so uh, that would be one criteria but what as an ecologist i would be very worried about is the independence of your sampling unit yeah. you know because a lot of people when this the most models are data hungry mm-hmm. and uh, when people go out and want to collect more and more data they ignore the fact that the samples are not independent anymore and how do you account for this uh, you know the the relatedness of your sample uh, there is a, a like a collinearity of your you know variables and mm-hmm. so you'll have to remove all those factors and then identify what is what is there in ecology that you want to say so your Because primary uh, your primary problem would be a false negative problem you just don't see I not mean, really i, I was more addressing the problem that uh, right. subhash raised about representativeness of samples mm-hmm. that one is the the uh, the the sampling unit itself has to be defined by the biology and the second is How when you say sampling, uh, when you say sampling unit, you mean the area in which you look. Uh, whatever for. is your sample. I mean, right. what uh, it can be a, uh, no, a single plant, or it can be a huge uh, plot, or it can be a a photograph taken from the sky. Whatever it is. Sure. So if it is, if it has to be representative of what you want to detect, the the signal, uh, some information should come from biology hmm. to inform. as to what that size should be and the second is how independent those samples are because mm-hmm. ultimately you plug in uh, you know uh, non independent samples into your models you will get very good uh, likelihoods and they mean nothing when you so say what do you uh, just so that we get this right what do you mean by non independent so no it's a, it's like a, you know if you want a random sample uh of uh, say uh how students in a in a in a school or in uh, no, no, students I, i think i get this uh, more generally yeah. but in the context of the species and trying to spot and spot rare species so oh. like even in the environment there is uh, there is at regular intervals you find some periodicity of certain variables like water right. availability right. so you cannot uh, design your sampling based on uniform intervals right of distances between your sampling unit either intervals of distance or intervals of time both yes right. both time and so you need to 
uh, understand that these samples which you take and call them as independent should really be independent that's a good point yeah uh, on the other hand made the dependence uh, dependence between the samples can also be modeled yeah it is and uh, so one can account for that yeah but that is after realizing that we might have you know uh, not actually sampled mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, independently mm-hmm. so, so how do you get time series in ecological well, data yeah, I mean, that, that effectively that's is what, the question right yes, because that's what i was getting how do you that. get super long time series data uh, you don't many times at least may sometimes you do but most of the times what happens is you have 10 or 20 years of data if you are lucky and which is but that is nothing on the nothing. ecological time frame that is right? correct. that's, that's, and that's why again and how again we are coming to back say? to his rare events and we want to predict the thankfully, rare thankfully sandeep has the benefit of going to the great financial crisis and education <laughs> crisis no, so <laughs> so we can refer to darwin as uh-huh. usual everything goes back to darwin right and so what darwin suggested and people had done it before i'm sure i'm not a history of science <laughs> expert sure, sure. Uh, but spatial replication also is useful so uh-huh. instead of having for example if i'm working on uh, right now i'm kind of dabbling into effect of uh, wolf reintroduction in yellowstone sure. and how that affects elk but elk elk uh-huh. uh, I think there is no elks, by the way. Oh, elk yeah. is plural of elk. I think, I elk. think, <laughs> as I recall. Uh, anyway, I, I don't mean to <laughs> sure. say. Uh, but so you may have, uh, if you think of Yellowstone, it's a huge park. Mm-hmm. So you may have time series in the northern part of Yellowstone, eastern part of Yellowstone, and they may be somewhat related, but if they are spatially far enough, then they are almost related. Unrelated. almost like two times almost series. unrelated and so you can build up your sample size by spatial replication and that's what many times we do do in ecology i mean but for that you kind of assuming that. that these elks in the northern elk in the northern <laughs> part and the southern part are the same species which, yes. which they are yeah and that's another one uh, the uniformitarianism i think <laughs> uniformitarianism you know, charles, yeah charles lyell said yeah. that the physical physical laws don't change <laughs> what happened now versus a billion years ago physics was physics so, so to some extent we do assume that elk have some innate similarity whether they are in there's something called elkness and yeah, yeah elkness exactly right that they behave similarly so i work on something called species distribution models or resource selection functions so we want to know what kind of resources would elk use or a particular species would use and there again we have the same issue that you can only have so many elk you can observe with their collars be, uh, you put the collars on them and uh, see what they do and i think this is this is a subtle point karthik so yeah. i mean if there are two somewhat disconnected or let's say strictly disconnected habitats can mm-hmm. the same species live in both the habitats I mean, presumably they can but you know i mean people say that the indian elephant is different from the african elephant and all that right so is, is it is it strict enough to say that if there are two very different habitats then the species even if they look the same they're not the same do you know what i mean yeah that that's what is cryptic speciation Hmm. you know very subtle speciation speciation whatever but uh, yeah but uh, n- not to forget is that uh, disjunct distributions can happen very quickly right with uh, changing uh, paleoclimate and uh, you know you have the american bison and the european bison right you know they are 
the same maybe a very small difference could but they all at the level of the elk in yellowstone park the northern part and the southern part could they be cryptically different species yeah they it could happen because of some new barriers maybe there's a huge reservoir or something that has come up and over time there is no movement between the two populations and they become distinct so these are incipient uh, evolutionary events right uh, and uh, it can be recorded it can be uh, you know ca- uh, estimated or quantified does simulation help with this uh, sandeep i mean would it be because you know so you have you know several hundreds and thousands of species and is there a way to would you be able to say a priori that you know this species is more likely to go extinct yeah based on traits now people are mm. uh, you know identifying species traits not uh, species per se species per se but, but there are traits of species that's because certain habitats are becoming endangered uh, and so on or maybe trait there is a trait bias to extinction proneness to climate change events right like you know unpredictable weather or increasing aridity or you know which are all modeled using the climate uh, data that's an interesting so point then you look at the species traits that might be uh, most vulnerable to these changes and then be able to say that when they change these are the likely faunal changes that you might uh, expect i think the point of simulation is simulation is typically comes has a role to play once a mathematical model is fixed right mm. so it helps in deductions right but uh, you know the broader point of kind of generating more data somehow so i'll give you a finance example right that you may have certain kind of stocks for which you have a data and now you say that okay these stocks are similar to other stocks as well they're in the same industry same geographical region etc so now it's it's giving you more information about one stock just by observing similar stocks mm. It's a good point it's a good way to get data but one has to be careful because as i mentioned you know these things are particularly for the rare events things are more sensitive and i think one more issue to keep in mind in all of this particularly you know when you're looking at uh you know rare event behavior of many of different things coming together is the dependence between them so i'm just bringing this in right now you know so in some sense that's also a very important area for research how to accurately model dependence of co-movements be- between different uh, in financial setting different instruments uh it could be that they ha- their dependence is uh, is in a particular manner in the normal scheme of things but when when the economy is stressed on the tails the dependence of is of a different sort they move up and down together much more than they would in normal circumstances so the correlation would increase or something to that effect absolutely correlation could completely blow up in the stress time so so dependence becomes very crucial in getting uh, getting predictions of rare events right now in all of this once you have a mathematical model you one uses simulation to come up with accurate predictions because all of these things are you know the model is so complicated that you can't really draw conclusions without using something like a monte carlo simulation tool how does one deal with very rare very very rare phenomena which which uh, what what's the lowest data point phenomena situation that you might encounter you know the thing thing with financial markets and this and that is that you know you can always look for proxies and say that you know okay all indian stocks are similar or all stocks listed in europe are similar and you can you know mm. you know i'm sure there's clever mathematics and statistics to deal with that but how does one deal with super rare events i'm not talking of you know things like an asteroid crashing on the planet and so on but right. there must be um there must be super rare events how is there a way to model surprises 
<laughs> is there a way to model surprises i think uh, uh, go ahead mm, no <laughs> if they are real surprises they are <laughs> surprises <laughs> there is really no model that can deal with it and so i think any time you do the modeling you are assuming this uniformitarianism principle that things are going to to be the same and if there is truly a surprise nothing can be done and so that's an unfor at least that's how i would look at it and any time the problem really is coming in this particular case is extrapolation right we only observe the data in a certain environment and how far can i extrapolate right and any rare event is necessary an extrapolation and that's where i think combining information across space or across different labs or whatever you want to do is critical and uh, recent not recently but in the last 20 or 30 years there is a statistical methodology that people have uh, created it's called hierarchical model or empirical based model where basically you combine data across space but you give you don't assume they are identical to each other like what initially when i said it in a simplistic fashion that they are the same but you can actually account for they are kind of similar not exactly the same and there is this methodology of empirical base or hierarchical models that can be used to combine somewhat disparate data and to give you a and a great example of that is uh, the white revolution mm-hmm. uh, milk production right. and it turned out that empirical base was used to improve the stock for cows and bulls and no two bulls are exactly the same but they come from a similar population the same way elk are kind of similar not exactly the same so when i said combine the data i did not mean that they have to be identical to each other but they have to be similar to each other of so course. two human beings are similar they are more different than elk but we are similar sure. so that's what i meant by combining the information and that may help in extrapolation i think one extent. point i'll just mention that although one cannot predict surprise but if the surprises are occurring in a you know you could say to yourself okay in the past i was surprised so often right and by these kind yeah. of things so if the surprises are occurring in an unsurprising manner then <laughs> right. there's some there's extrapolation there's some regularity then. to the yeah either the time distribution or whatever of the surprise events now they that's right they I may mean, all be very different kinds of events but they are surprises they they're surprising so yeah i mean mm-hmm. a shock occurs every you know maybe few times a year or something like that and there's an asymptotic theory which tells you okay how shock should be distributed so one can kind of use those ideas but nonetheless for two surprises of course you can never be prepared mm-hmm. and uh, so you spoken about the financial markets a few times and deep so yeah. for, for example obviously there are different kinds of sub financial markets now if you just integrate all of them is it is it does it lead to fewer rare events fewer extreme events fewer danger ruin events or what happens i mean i know i'm trying to take you in the yeah 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 just merge them all and go in the asymptotic territory does it does it i guess your point is increase? your point is that since all these markets are interconnected there's a interconnection kind so of so they may be a different commodities market and a different equities market but they're not unrelated they mm-hmm. are related in many ways so a more integrated market across regions across sub asset classes and so on is it is it more prone to those sorts of events are less prone to those sorts of events and so i know we're trying to design an ecosystem there now an ecologist like kartik would tell us that something like ecology exists and there are niches which are 
maybe fully cut out from the others or almost entirely nothing is fully cut out everybody shares the same planet but right i think uh, so some interesting aspects of this is one of course in all the financial markets are governed by investors and mm-hmm. they are governed by fear and greed and that's common oh. so to that extent there's a common kind of dependence amongst all these mm-hmm. markets Uh, so you can be reasonably sure that nobody is looking for large losses and, and, and right. so on and so on. That's right. And they all get scared at the same time so they withdraw from the markets at the same time and so that exacerbates the shocks to the market. So uh, in that sense having lots of markets which are interconnected is not a good thing that uh, in that doesn't lot kind of markets of, connected is not a good thing. Not a good thing in the sense that you've not kind you've of fear could propagate faster or you mean it in that sense? You've not been able to kind of diversify away the randomness. by having all all the markets connected together because the common mm. factor of a investor is the same and the fear of the investor is the same you risk mm. driving correlation between all kinds of markets so if, That's if, right. if commodity mm. markets start going down if it's fully integrated even the equity market will start that, going down the fixed income market will start going is, down and so on that is correct now the other thing can be that you can think of these um, you know one way to think about all these agencies as kind of a graphical model nodes which are connected to each other mm-hmm. and now you say to yourself okay i have a shock on one node because there's a lot of interaction maybe it can be absorbed if there's a lot more interaction because there are a lot of nodes out there which can absorb this shock so there are interesting results that they say that you know small amounts of shocks this kind of structure can absorb but for large shock this interconnectedness can often lead to actually propagation of the shock more so one needs to be careful in drawing conclusions uh, that you know having more interconnectivity did that make the overall economy more secure or less secure you know if there's a sh- shock if somebody some particular node or a bank for example suffers a major loss it's connected to 10 other banks and maybe that can help it absorb that shock it can borrow money from them but if the shock is so big that it causes all those 10 10 banks also to fail and then they are connected further to another 100 banks it can propagate so you know it's not quite clear that having more interconnection is a good thing but this is still a somewhat qualitative feeling like would you go all the way to the extent of saying that let's go for fully integrated markets or so i i know you are it seems like you want to be a little tentative and cautious i think one gets that mm-hmm. but at the same time you've said somewhat good things about both Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> is, is is there a golden mean between the two I and mean, look these are very complex ecological kind of questions almost so um it might be a little futile looking for yeah, I would iron laws of mathematics and all this but I mean uh, I guess so yeah there would there be a theorem which says that okay there's a right level of kind of interconnectedness which is most shock resistance so that would be the kind of theorem that you know uh, mathematicians would work on to give these kinds of insights so what is your is yes. what is your intuition on this subash yeah, just, just at the level to, of intuition i was getting i was going to interject at the because there is a theory in uh, ecology called source and sink mm-hmm. theory and large many large many small versus a few large reserves and so mathematicians have worked on similar things and what you were talking about interconnectedness mm-hmm. so there might be sources of Uh, individuals mm-hmm. and uh, and there might be a sink mm-hmm. and if they are connected and if the sink is really big mm-hmm. and if animals are moving around without knowing there is a sink they all go in the well and die <laughs> or or the sources might actually help uh, so both those things can happen and mathematical ecologists have actually developed theories about what is the right 
Mm-hmm. Right amount, at least in the ecological context. Did you have a familiarity with that result? Like uh, not particularly, not at this moment. But I know there exist some of these theorems that what should be, how much of the sources and sink what balance there should be. So, in the case of financial markets and so on, the the idea of a rare event is is a total ruin, like a company going bankrupt or a nation sovereign uh, bond having going junk and things of that sort. What's the equivalent of that in an ecological context? Like, what's the equivalent of a ruin in, in all species going extinct? <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, because somehow it, it seems like ecology is a good place to look for what tricks work because in somehow. Earth has managed to hang around for all these years. And yeah, there are meltdowns, you mm-hmm. know, uh, there are cascades uh, of... Uh, Can uh, they be mass extinctions as total yeah, wipeouts? Yeah, like uh, the, the, they're, they're called trophic cascades. Mm-hmm. Like if you remove uh, an apex predator, right? you would have the, the herbivore population hitting the rooftop and... You know, eating up the grass, all the all the, grass uh, all the vegetation, and then consequently, everything that depends on that vegetation also collapses. So you will have such meltdowns happening, and then you have, uh, like you said about the Key, the keystone. keystone species. So if you remove the keystone species, one species can lead to a cascade of other extinctions. Like uh, you know, the typical example is uh, the when the dodo went extinct, another tree went extinct. Right. Because the dodo was eating the fruit and digesting the seed coat, and then leading to its dispersal, defecating the mm-hmm. uh, the the seed, and that's how the seed would germinate. Right now, the when the dodo went extinct, the the tree had no means to recover, propagate, uh, propagate in a, in a very dense uh, vegetative uh, area, and then the tree went extinct. So you can have such uh, interconnections between species, leading to uh, you know. Um, uh, collateral damages, as you may call it, yeah. So, is there uh, so when you think of either computer networks or you know I mean, other kinds of networks, it looks like one when one visualizes them, one thinks of them at some level of uniformity. They're all kind of equally important or equally unimportant. There's a lot of redundancy built in and so on. And but in the kind of examples that Karthik has just given, there is either an apex species or a keystone species, which if it vanishes, everything else vanishes. Is there? Are there systems, maybe this is only for living systems, I don't know, but is it, are there systems where you think that's likely to happen as well, where you take out a few nodes and it just leads to the entire thing collapsing? Um, I, I guess, yeah, in our, the way the systems are designed, that would be the case. So we've had this in the power setting example where, you know, in India we had a blackout over, you know, most parts of, uh, I guess, North India. There was a great failure. Right. Uh, so I think in the way things are designed, that's very much, uh, which very much part of the design right now. So you worry a lot about this. You know, uh, communication system goes off, and suddenly all the phones in the city are not working. We've seen that maybe in Mumbai a little bit. Um, yeah. So there's nothing different. I guess the kind of mathematics that would be used to understand these things would be similar. Right. So what are the open questions, and like what is the theoretical question worth understanding in this context? And is there an open question? I mean, I know you've spoken of this uh, difference between the more frequentist and Bayesian kind of methods. Yeah, I mean, those are about how to do uh, inductive inference and deductive inference. But one of the issues that comes up in that context is that we kind of know how to select the best model. Mm-hmm. But no model, I mean, there are other models that are kind of good. They are not that far. 
And so one of the issues that uh, we have been struggling with is how to average those models for prediction. So one model may be applicable in one area, somewhat close by model might be applicable somewhere else. And so if we could model average predictions, then they will make it, it will make it robust, but also the extrapolation might be better. I mean, that's the conjecture I'm making, the extrapolation part. But model averaging and how to do it correctly is something that we don't know, but I think it is important. Can you can you can one quantify uncertainty itself? Uh, uncertainty. Uncertainty of models, uncertain because I know we. we have, <laughs> uh, uncertainty of a model, no, but how good a support is, yes. And so that's where the problem is. We know how to which model is closest, which model is second closest, and all that. But how to give weight based on that in order to do this which is what you are getting at, sort of. A model is uncertain, highly uncertain, we should give it less weight. Right. But we don't know how to do it because models are not random variables. Right. And that's why we cannot really quantify uncertainty about the model. We only can quantify uncertainty about the observables or the responses. Right. And so that's why I think there is there is a difficulty about how to how to combine models in the right way. And I don't think we have a satisfactory answer. You think you think there would be an answer in the future? Ah, um, or it, it, it seems like one of those things which will remain open. Uh, that's my or current... You, do you think the question is well posed enough? Uh, well, the question may be well posed, but there may not be an answer. Any, any answer. Yeah, so uh, my feeling is that there is no answer to that because... Uh, because if, then it feels like it's a, which is the point that we were discussing a little while ago, it feels like it still needs a lot of judgment, no? Yes, yeah. It needs a crazy amount of human judgment. Uh, so. To some extent, we need the judgment. And even then... So if is, you had a ton of ecological data, you will still need to talk to an ecologist. You yes, can't just, yeah. you know what I mean. And people yeah. like Karthik have a good future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you will need to do that, definitely. And without the ecologist or the subs substantive field expert, None of these models are in use. What's the what? What is a what is an open question? What what is what is worth mm -hmm. understanding? What is uh... well in the context of what we are discussing? It's similar to what Subhash just said that you know you're worried about rare event which has catastrophic consequences, and you build a model and you know the model is not right, and you build some kind of quantification of the model, so to speak. You maybe say okay, maybe this is not the correct model, but let me see all the plausible models which are there, which are explained by the data, and maybe do some kind of worst-case analysis for the rare event. That becomes terribly conservative. Right. <laughs> you know, it makes it very, you don't really get good predictions. So you, you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to be somewhat pragmatic. I'm going to balance between these two. How do I make decisions? Because I need to make decisions. And, you know, I can't just say that, okay, I will not deal with this phenomena. So I think that's, you know, that's uh, going to always be an ongoing problem how to make uh, decisions about rare events in future, keeping all these things in mind. Uh, but I think we will get more insights. We'll have more data going forward. I mean, data is now much more available than it used to be. And you feel like these domains have insights to offer to each other? Like oh, oh, no, absolutely. There are commonalities, you know, in terms of underlying phenomena. There are, you know, few basic structures which govern how the macro effects happen in all these domains. So, you know, that study, I think, will continue. We have a lot of insights already. We have a lot of theorems which tell us, you know, uh, what micro behavior leads to what macro phenomena. 
across all of these domains. But I'd expect that lot. I mean, that's an exciting area for future. One expects to see a lot of it. And are there are there domains of application where one has almost entirely cracked this perfect storm problem? You can be reasonably sure that you know you've done whatever you needed to from an application of theory and ideas and insights perspective, and also whatever mechanism design one has to do to say that you know there's zero mm. chance that internet would go down there's zero chance that power <laughs> like so if if we have figured some of this out one should be able to assume forget aspects like not enough power being available but can one design power system so that it would never go down you know what i mean yeah i mean i guess so wherever we feel we have enough representative data one may be more certain in those kinds of settings uh so i'm not an expert in this but i'd imagine in chemical reactions and all there you know where we are worried about rare events right know, certain things happen because of rare events i'd imagine people have a very good idea of uh, how to control those uh, those settings uh, similarly in in the internet settings power systems i don't know if we have enough data and they're also more vexed because you know that are existing power system right just because you come up with a nice elegant mathematical thing it's not like you can just go and implement that that's right yeah. i mean the world is out there you can't replace it with a new abstract one yeah. and it's changing you know with the with the way we generate power now with the, all the renewables coming in wind energy and all of that you need new kind of mathematics and uh, it has to be representative so Yeah. Uh, won't you need a loss function? So all of this seems to rely on loss function. Sure. What is the implication, and how do you? That's where I think the human input comes in. What is important for the society? So I may say, let the tigers go extinct. It doesn't matter to me, sure. Because as, as a society, we could say that whether it is right or not. So that's where I think we do all this modeling, mm. but without proper. quantification of the loss function which is determined by the society not by scientists mm-hmm. not by mathematicians but by the society and that's the output that we need as you were asking before right yeah, so. karthik over to you what 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 do you think is uh, what is an open question as far as you're concerned in this context something that is not very well understood and could be understood uh, a few things actually you know from what we have been discussing there are a few ideas that came up to my mind uh one is uh, uh as people who want to make the best best uh, judgment of what is there what we have collected as data we should be cautious of avoiding a circularity in the argument mm-hmm. you know because all these methods are very precariously poised to make wrong interpretations if you're not careful in fact it seems like they almost designed for making wrong <laughs> implementations <laughs> so if you're not careful <laughs> and uh, you know uh, there is a th- there's a r- kind of a rat race to come up first and say things and right. you know not be prudent enough right. and uh, that causes a huge damage to the impression about people who do these speculative uh, you know uh policy formulation of speculations on what can be the unfolding events so uh i think uh, it should start from the training end you know that when we train people who would take up these roles they should be it shouldn't be over enthusiastic uh, about and, uh, yeah there there are limitations and we should not cross the red line that kind of thing and uh, yeah we have to set the red line and clearly say this is not done huh? 
so the, that has to be put in place <laughs> <laughs> the second uh, issue that uh, comes up to my mind is uh, you know uh, for almost uh, uh, maybe last half a century sure we have been like from uh, you know the first essay garrett hardin wrote about you know uh, what how do we manage commons right right and uh, you know uh, we have not resolved these problems primarily because uh, of the changing uh, nature of our interactions today we are one globalized world and what is global sustainability and how do you reduce that knowledge of global sustainability to local at the local level which can be implemented right so you have notions of sustainability at a local level they have no they have no connection to global right right the policies are driven at the local level but the issue is global and you have to address global sustainability and uh, how do you then bring it back to what do you mean by global sustainability no are we sustainable as a globe no you know we are overreaching we have our consumption rates have gone several times higher and countries are uh, exceeding uh, in the per capita consumption rate almost 30 times right and uh, this is causing already we are seeing issues like terrorism and you know uh, civil unrest and sure, all sure. this is because of inequity so this question that i posed to sandeep a little while ago where in the case of financial markets if one were to pose it and you know none of these things are totally isolated so one gets that but if one were to pose that question in an ecological context obviously there's no such thing as globalized ecology ecology is ecology um, but because of other realms of globalization right other kinds of movements and species going around the human beings are going around a lot more than yes. before and this and yes. that what what's the what's the tentative response to that same question does it does it make uh, rare events and let's call rare events extinction here uh, more likely less likely i know there's that background rate of extinction mm. and so on but and again we're trying to isolate the impact of one variable or whatever one one effect on this thing but is it more or less i mean is it possible to answer that question yeah it is uh, we are already in the sixth extinction phase you know where rapid extinction of species is already happening but it's happened five times before if yeah, but this is this is caused by one species mm-hmm. right no What it is not ones? caused by a meteor strike or uh, you know rifting of continental plates or it's purely by just one organism one yeah one population of an organism So what is uh, how likely do you think it is that we will go extinct? Yeah, it's a, it, I think the same probabilities apply and it's pretty high. Is, is it possible to do that in human population? Do your models on Sure. Oh, it is Me, possible. Actually to answer your question would we go extinct? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Every species has gone extinct. We so will. in a <laughs> very uh, straightforward fashion. But we yeah. of course and of we course can, the sun will yeah. switch off someday so one <laughs> minute on that. that Subhash even the rich people or <laughs> oh of course not the top 1% but aside from that uh, but I remember uh, reading about one of quotes from Gandhi ji Uh, he said earth can support your needs not your greeds of course of course and that's what is to some extent that is what is happening that we are going way beyond our needs and uh, and we can calculate the probability of extinction 
in a realistic So the same population models. Now, obviously, human beings are not as territorial as those species. We kind of move around a lot exactly. more. There's influx yeah. and outflux. But can 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 it be modeled in more or less the same way? Uh, yes and no. Uh, no, yes. Mostly no part. I think uh, let's, yeah. let's skip the yes part. Yeah. So no, because we are adaptable, far right. more adaptable than most other species are. We learn, and we have this up here on our in our brain <laughs> that we can use to adapt. That's why we can live in Canada and we can live in the tropics. Right. And that adaptability is make it would make it very difficult to actually model. Because we don't know what kind of adapt- adaptations Other human hand. beings yeah. could come up with. That's why that part is difficult. Whereas many other animals, they don't really adapt that much. They do adapt to some extent, and mm. but not that much. Is, is, is this is this robust enough that human beings are more adaptable than, of course, with more adaptable than the other species no that's again goes with the caveat that we are our knowledge of adaptedness is very limited right species have evolved over several million years yeah we have come on earth very recent so our right. knowledge of what we are adaptable to itself is very narrow so the events that pan out beyond a certain period we have no idea of yeah which Many species that have survived millions of years have gone through all kinds of ages, yes, saline and phases, are volcanic there. phases. Mm-hmm. So there are there are living examples of animals and plants which have just gone through that very tough period. We have not seen tough periods at all. I would say. Do non-living systems? Do you have this notion of adaptation there, Sandeep? I mean, can we? You're saying can we kind of build up? rules simple rules of adaptive and in, uh, in non-living systems uh, in some, in some sense the way we try to typically approach this is we are trying to replicate because in a way when you do your analysis you treat these individual entities as passive units where mm-hmm. you know their fate mm-hmm. happens to them now obviously we are kind of able to evade our fate i mean of course and the other species <laughs> so i think it's this is not right, right. only human beings Uh, no, I was going to say that uh, you know we at least now that there's a lot of work on learning, where we are trying to create uh, you know uh, models for how uh, you know artificial intelligence etc. So that's kind of based upon this whole notion of adaptability. So you um, observe the information and then you kind of improve a little bit as you go along. So to that extent, yeah, you know. we are developing mathematics for adaptability and that holds mm-hmm. for everybody right it holds for individuals it holds for the banks because even this bank which is oh, which has been yeah. in these two previous financial crises presumably they react in a slightly different ways i don't know whether the data sets well that's are, right but that's that's because banks are uh, run by human beings are run by human beings at least so far that's a good point that's a good point perfect i think that's a good note to end this on thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again Thank, thank you for you. coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.